Hello, my name is Dr. Amy Hoffnagel from the University of Florida in Jacksonville, and today I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Monica Vavilala on behalf of the Education Committee of the Society for Neuroscience and Anesthesia and Critical Care. Dr. Vavilala is a professor of both pediatrics and anesthesiology at the University of Washington in Seattle. She is the director of the Harborview Injury Prevention and Research Center. She has published on traumatic brain injury in both the adult and pediatric populations, and her work is funded by the NIH and the Washington State Department of Health. Today, I'm going to be talking with her about the latest management goals for patients with severe traumatic brain injury. I'd like to start by exploring some of the new literature regarding management of patients with severe traumatic brain injuries, specifically related to transfusion strategies. In the recent past, neurotrauma patients were often treated with a liberal transfusion strategy. That is, the goal was to keep their hemoglobin greater than 10. I'm hoping that you can start by explaining the rationale behind this thinking. Sure. Um, there are a number of uh, strategies that are suggested to improve outcomes after traumatic brain injury, and one of those is to provide sufficient oxygen delivery to the brain, and one way to do that is to maintain a hematocrit that is desirable. Now, in reality, what that number is is still really unclear, and we had previously thought that 30 was a good number because it's good for the heart, it's good for the kidneys, it's probably good for the brain. Um, recent studies have shown that a hemoglobin of 7 or over, uh, translating to a hematocrit of 21 or over, may be equally effective. And I would say that currently there's still equipoise, and we are not sure exactly where to maintain uh, hemoglobin and hematocrit after TBI. Some of the issues here are that it's not just about the red cell and the oxygen carrying capacity, it's also about the ability of oxygen to actually get to the parts of the brain that are injured. And with um, compromises in diffusion and mitochondria and uptake, um, and the fact that traumatic brain injury is such a heterogeneous condition, um, we are still struggling trying to find out what the optimal hematocrit ought to be. Can you comment a little bit about the evolution of the literature in regard to this? Well, I think there were some observational studies uh, showing an association between good outcomes and patients who had hematocrits maintained over 30. There were also some physiological studies that showed a relationship between better brain oxygenation and maintaining a hematocrit over 30. But those data reflected studies that were um, relatively small in number and didn't necessarily translate to uh, showing improvements in outcome, maybe because there are other factors also that are contributing to outcomes in these patients. Okay. Um, one of the things that we see a lot in trauma patients, and especially those with traumatic brain injury, is that they often tend to be coagulopathic. Um, what are your thoughts on the role of thromboelastography in guiding correction of coagulopathy? Again, there's no class one evidence uh, showing that it's superior to standard measures of coagulation measurement. Um, however, that may also be because the studies haven't been done. Now, thromboelastography 
provides additional information in relation to clot formation and breakdown that standard measures may not provide. And we have not adopted TEG as a standard measure of coagulopathy and trauma patients at our center. There's a lot of controversy as to whether it really provides information that leads to better outcomes. Um, Any thoughts on using blood products versus coagulation concentrates in this patient population? Prothrombin concentrate complexes are, I think, used um, as alternatives in refractory situations. Factor seven can be used. It's very expensive. I think, you know, where we are currently in the national landscape is making sure that we use platelet component therapy to uh, treat patients who are chronically on aspirin who present, for example, with acute subdural hematomas. That's something that's doable. And in one of our regions um, in in the area here in Washington State, we've developed a rapid reversal protocol where if we know that you're on um, warfarin, then patients get uh, fresh frozen plasma early right after the CT scan if it shows that there's a traumatic brain injury, and platelet therapy if you're on chronic aspirin and you require surgery. Um, is there any indication for DDAVP also in those patients? I think the literature doesn't really support routine use of DDAVP, and um, I don't think it's standard of care to use it for TBI with intracranial hemorrhage. Thank you. Um, So now broadening out to look at some additional TBI management strategies, what are your thoughts on intermittent versus continuous drainage of CSF in the severe TBI population? So CSF drainage um, is a means to reduce intracranial pressure and assumes that there is CSF to be drained. Um, In some patients, uh, this is not feasible because there's not enough room in the ventricles to place the drain. In some situations, there's not enough CSF made, and so CSF drainage is not a first-line treatment for reduction of ICP. However, in some circumstances where it's technically feasible to place the EVD and CSF production exists to allow for drainage, the question then becomes, do you continuously drain or do you intermittently drain? And the verdict's still out. I think there are small-scale studies to show that intermittent drainage is less effective than continuous drainage, but you do have to worry about overdrainage and um, intracranial hemorrhage as a result of that. And so it's not, it's not clear yet what we should be doing. And then on top of that is the issue of using EVDs at all to measure ICP. Now, external ventricular drains have an associated infectious risk, and Some centers routinely put patients on antibiotics if you have an EVD in place. So that's another infrastructure issue that needs to be addressed, weighing the risks and benefits of EVD placement and using CSF drainage as a therapeutic measure against the infectious risk of ventriculitis um, with an indwelling open catheter. What recent study do you wish that more people were aware of? Well, I think one um, important study that published uh, this year Uh, was one by Randall Chestnut, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which examined um, differences um, in a South American setting, differences in outcomes based on ICP management versus um, standard neurocritical care without ICP monitoring. And while the study found no difference in 
um, outcomes suggesting that good neurocritical care is very important in low-middle-income nations. And the study really doesn't address the, the role of ICP monitoring in a developed country. The study is really important because it demonstrated the feasibility of conducting a randomized control trial of ICP monitoring, and it showed that there's still questions remaining around, you know, it's not just about placement of the monitor, but it's also about how you use the information that, you know, that you that you get from the monitoring um, itself. And so I think that we really can't say from the study that ICP monitoring is not beneficial. What I think we can say is that good neurocritical care is really, really important and that there should probably be a protocol in non-monitored, in non-monitored patients that, um, that may be used to achieve good uh, and desirable outcomes. I will definitely be looking that article up. I missed that one as well. So for those listening out to this broadcast that may not deal with patients with severe TBI often, what three key management goals would you give them to optimize patient outcomes? I think that it's really important uh, to think about the fact that there should be an infrastructure to take care of patients with TBI, that is receiving care at a trauma center that is capable of addressing the needs of the TBI patient across the spectrum and continuum of care. Um, the second being uh, more physiologically oriented that, you know, really working to prevent unnecessary hyperventilation in the absence of herniation seems to be really, really important. And then the third of even though we aren't really quite clear on what the optimum cerebral perfusion pressure ought to be, that we should certainly prevent cerebral hypotension, and I think that's where we can avoid harm. All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.